0: Capital Allocators is brought to you by NASDAQ Solovis. As an allocator, every investment decision you make has a direct impact on the financial well-being of your stakeholders and beneficiaries. But with a fragmented portfolio view across your public and private market holdings, you can risk making decisions without the full visibility of their impact on the overall portfolio organizations need a solution that delivers a consolidated portfolio view to let the investment team shift their focus from operations to analysis. A solution that helps create context faster and take the right actions sooner. Nasdaq Sylovis is a software platform that unifies your public and private market holdings data to create a single source of truth. It empowers investment teams to understand the impact of every decision with accurate and reliable information. Solovis delivers transparency and insight into performance, liquidity, and risk across an entire multi-asset class portfolio. You can learn more and request a demo at nasdaq.com/solutions/solovis. That's nasdaq.com/solutions/s o l o v i s. Occasionally, an event takes place that causes investors to reassess risk. Russia's actions in Ukraine last week could be a tipping point for one of those events. In a divergence from our normal show, I reached out to Marco Papich to see what we could learn. Marco is the chief strategist at Clocktower Group, where he provides research on geopolitics, macroeconomics, and markets. He's a past guest on the show, and that conversation is replayed in the feed. Our conversation tackles the implication of the events in the Ukraine on geopolitics and markets over time. We cover Russia, the US, oil, China, and answers to the most pressing questions his clients are asking in response to last week's event. Please enjoy my conversation with Marco Popovich. Marco, great to see you. Great to see you too, Ted. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, thanks for doing this on short notice. We don't do a whole lot of these, but obviously with the events that have transpired in the Ukraine, there's a lot of thoughts going on about political uncertainty and what that means. And I'd love to just open it up to you and ask, as you've been processing this, what you've been thinking and formulating.
1: I think that what's going on right now is a continuation of basically a theme that I've been developing over the past decade which is multipolarity and this is what the multipolar world looks like it's a world where we all sit around and talk about china us and then suddenly it's not china us it's something else and this is a multipolar world in which multiple countries can pursue their interests independent of one another and that creates a very very volatile environment in which an equilibrium is difficult to create There isn't a global equilibrium that you can rely on, that you can put your finger on, like Cold War equilibrium between US and Soviet Union. I mean, that threat environment was so easy, so simple, that it became mathematically elegant. You had mathematicians creating geopolitical strategy. That's what mutual assured destruction was. Game theory came to the forefront. But in a multipolar environment, it's so complicated because there are different threats at different times, different spheres of influence intersecting each other. And what we're seeing now is Russia basically reasserting itself in its own sphere of influence. It's been doing that for a while. It did that in 2008 in Georgia, 2014, obviously, in Ukraine, and now again in Ukraine. That's the context in which we should put this. And if you're a long-term allocator of capital, it doesn't mean that there's something that happened today that's profound. You've actually been living in a profound environment for a decade And it's an environment in which the frequency of geopolitical conflict is going to be higher. Now, that doesn't mean that you necessarily have to throw all your methods and frameworks out the window. You just have to understand that the frequency of these events will be high. Not all of them are going to be
0: as relevant. Not all of them are going to be created equal. So as you start to unravel the direct implication on the US and Russia right now, How are people thinking about this in the medium term? I think that there's two ways that this could evolve. And I kind of have to
1: think about the next couple of days in order to answer your question, perhaps. One thing I would say is that there's a path here where President Putin and the Kremlin declare victory quickly. That would be a sophisticated move, one that takes into account their material constraints, which are vast. At that point, they declare victory, mission accomplished, banner goes up. They say the degraded Ukraine's military capacity. They sit down with Ukraine leadership and bang out an equilibrium that probably includes Ukraine's neutrality. And in that case, I think that we could get back to some sort of a status quo, anti, in which Russia's an adversary, but they got what they wanted. They withdrew quickly. They won. They pulled back. And then we go back to Italy selling them luxury goods, although it looks like they're going to be doing that anyways. On the other hand, there is another scenario in which this gets really bad. And by the way, the first scenario, just to be clear, is I think what the market is pricing right now with market action being where it is. My concern is that Vladimir Putin has so miscalculated his material constraints right now that he may not back off because the reason he miscalculated them is that he doesn't care, that he is being irrational. And in that world, I can't forecast him very well. That's a world in which the constraint framework fails And that he might triple down and quadruple down on a war that will be ruinous for him personally as a leader of Russia. But much more importantly for us as long term allocators of capital, what that means is that the consequences and the tit for tat between Russia and the United States and the West would get really bad. And then you're going to start talking about embargoes of commodities, both self-imposed by Russia and perhaps imposed by the West. And then you're talking about inflationary impacts of this conflict being something akin to the 1973 Yom Kippur War, which is definitely a different geopolitical risk than any other event we've had since the Second World War. It's the one we all remember in finance, even if we're not geopolitical experts. It was the cherry on top of the inflationary Sunday that tipped us into a recession from 73 to 75. And of course,
0: the dreaded stagflation. Assuming Putin is rational in what those constraints are. Why don't you walk through what you see as the most important constraints on him today? The most important constraint, first and foremost, is that Ukraine is a very large country, larger than UK
1: and Germany put together. The territory is vast. So mobilizing troops and invading it from different sides is a very complicated action, one that Russia has never done in its post-Soviet era. It's never conducted something like this. It's fraught with risks. Second, it has a military capacity, which is decent. It's better than what Iraq had when the United States of America, a much more superior fighting force than Russia today, invaded it. And that's what you're seeing already. You're seeing reports of Ukrainians holding their own. The third issue is complicated. We need to talk about it a little bit. And it's something that here in the West, we don't really take time to unravel, which is the complicated demographics of Ukraine. There are Russian speakers in Ukraine who are not pro-Russian. They may be ethnically Ukrainian or ethnically Russian, but they're native Russian speakers. President Zelensky himself is actually a Russian speaker. His Ukrainian is kind of funny. And so President Zelensky falls into that group of people who, on a map, look like they're somehow pro-Russian, but they're not. They're actually quite anti-Russian. And so the actual percent of the Ukrainian population outside of Donetsk, Luhansk, and Crimea that would welcome Russians, is extremely small. If I had to estimate, I'd say 10, 15% of the population, maybe. So just because you speak Russian as your native language does not make you pro-Russian. And that makes occupation of this country extremely difficult. This idea that they're going to impose some sort of regime change, that's like straight out of a fantasy book that somebody read to Putin when he falls asleep. It makes no sense. And by the way, don't believe me, David Petrios had a great article, I forgot in which media outlet, but you can Google it. David Petraeus, who invented America's counterinsurgency manual, basically says the same thing. This is 10 times more complicated for Russia to execute than what U.S. did in Iraq. So those are some of the material constraints. I would add to that, obviously, sanctions from the West, but I actually don't think that's a big deal for Russia. Russia has built up a massive current account surplus, biggest since 2006. Their FX reserves are 550 billion. They've rebuilt them since 2014. And generally speaking, since 2014, Russia has reduced its reliance on the Western financial system. So I think it's military constraints. And on top of that, probably the most important constraint for Russia is domestic politics. We're seeing protests in St. Petersburg and Moscow, but we also saw before this action really tepid support for an operation like this. Russians see Ukrainians as brother people whatever you want to call it now there is some superiority complex in that it's a little bit of a little brother big brother but it's not imperial they don't want to annex ukraine only about 25 30 percent russians would want to be in a single state and vast majority of russians 80 percent, according to some of the polls i've seen expected there not to be a war so they were caught by surprise and now they're being told by their government that the reason they were surprised is that oh by the way Ukraine is being run by Nazis. Well, it's 2022. People have Instagram and they have social media. And it's just very difficult to convince even median voters who live in places like Russia that that's the case. It's so sudden. Yesterday, it was just an adversary. Today, it's full of Nazis. How do you assess the response of U.S. markets? I think the U.S. markets are going along with that famous statement, you buy the sound of cannon." I understand that in my career as a geopolitical investment strategist, I've always said that. In my book, I literally have that table that goes through every conflict ever. And every single one of them, Ted, was a buying opportunity, except for the Yom Kippur war. And so I think that's what's happening in the market right now. Maybe there's a little bit of a perception that Fed might back off, but I don't see that in the bond market. I don't see this expectation that the Fed will be easier. Maybe that's motivating it a little bit. So that's how I explain it. And and I worry about that because I think that the Yom Kippur War, the one event on my table that did cause meaningful decline in asset prices, it does have a lot in common with this particular situation today. And that's what worries me, because you can have two events now. You can have an event where this gets really bad, inflationary pressures increase, and then the Fed increases its hawkishness like it did in 73 and causes a Recession. Now, I actually am not in that camp. I think the Fed is extremely sensitive to the political risks domestically in the US, and they will not look to curb inflation at the risk of a recession. I don't think they will, but I'm in that camp.
0: So, if you were thinking about this in the context of a broad asset allocation framework, long term investor, sometimes events like this are caused for short term rebalancings. Sometimes events like this are caused to really rethink material change in asset allocation. And I'd love to get your sense across a distribution of outcomes. Let's just start with where might people be thinking about rebalancing based on what's happened?
1: Well, we've seen more and more institutional investors ask us for advice on commodity managers. And I've been of the view since the pandemic started that we are in a new inflationary regime and that commodities would be the primary winner of that regime and not gold, but just commodities for a number of different reasons. It's not just inflation hedge. It's also that you have so many things happening, Ted, that are broad stroke geopolitical themes. You have the green energy agenda, which I don't think is going to be reversed in a substantive way, despite the costs. You have a CapEx agenda, which is driven by this national security prerogative for redundancy building. So we saw that with the pandemic, obviously, we need to have redundancy in pharma. And we saw that during the trade war, we need to have redundancy in semiconductors. Every country in the world wants to have its own fabs. France is now building fabs. All of these things in the initial phase are inflationary. And now on top of that, investors are starting to realize this multipolar theme that I've been banging the drum for the past decade, which is a multipolar world is a world of inefficiencies. It's not a world of no globalization. Far from it. There'll still be globalization. It will just be, the world will be carved up into spheres of influence. And as a long-term allocator, you need to think about what does that mean, spheres of influence? Here's what it means. Commodities. Global supply is no longer global. It's much more local. There will be barriers for you to get your cobalt from there because that's not in your sphere of influence. And that just creates an inefficiency. So global supply of everything gets more inefficient. When you add that to the green agenda, when you add that to the redundancy issue, you just have a much more inflationary environment. And in that environment, as an allocator of capital, I think you have to rethink risk parity. You have to rethink what is your downside risk protection. And ironically, I think the best downside risk protection is commodities, which is weird because commodities should be correlated to growth. So when growth suffers, commodities should suffer with them. That's not really a good hedge, the way bonds were, But I think that actually they will be because growth downturns could actually be stagflationary in nature. And so in that case, actually having exposure to commodities in some of a risk parity perception is really good. I think this has already been happening. As I said, allocators are looking for commodity managers. Some of these guys who thought they had to rewrite their resumes are coming back strong. And so I don't think this event itself is
0: phase shift that way, but it will contribute to that view, I think. So I want to, dive in on two micro aspects of that. So the first is this idea of spheres of influence. And how does this event, or does this event, redraw some of those spheres of influence around the world? I don't think it redraws it. I just think that it makes vacuous American
1: claim that America doesn't recognize spheres of influence. That was the famous Hillary Clinton comment to Russia, actually, when she was the Secretary of State. And it was this very imperial American view of unipolar moment, like, hey, we don't recognize your sphere of influence. Tough cookie. Well, we are going to have to. Otherwise, things get complicated, and then you have to cash the checks you've been writing. In other words, you have to go and fight for Ukraine's membership in the Western sphere of influence. And so I'm not sure this really redraws much, but it just accentuates the fact that we are now in a world where we probably have to take that into account, these spheres of influence. We're going to have to think about them. With the green energy revolution, Ted, just hear me out. I think we're redrawing the commodity supply chains. Because suddenly things like cobalt become extremely relevant to the future of your energy supply. And most of it is found in the Congo. And China has really good reach in the Congo. So I'm sure that they're in some dark windowless room in Langley. There's somebody out there thinking how to maybe push back on China's sphere of influence in Africa. And what's interesting about that is that it sounds very much like that 19th century, early 20th century, which was an age when investors were geopolitical strategists. You couldn't
0: separate the two because these things intersected almost in every single investment decision. So people are interesting commodity managers, but oil's just cracked or close to $100 a barrel. That feels like it's in direct conflict with the green energy movement over the last couple of years. So how are you thinking about what happens with oil from here and how investors should be thinking about oil and oil exposure? I've been bullish oil for quite some time now. Not so much when I speak to pension funds because they have
1: mandates and ESG rules. But when I speak to family offices for the past year and a half, my message has been you need a green, brown barbell portfolio. You want to be in the brownest of the brown stuff and then invest in green tech as much as you can, hopefully not in public markets. I prefer the privates for that space. But going forward, first of all, the fundamental setup for oil looks pretty good for a number of different reasons. Non-OPEC, non-Canada, non-US production is lagging. Shale rigs are just not coming back up the way they used to. There's not enough capital. And I don't think this is incompatible with the green revolution. I think proponents of the green energy shift are happy oil is at $100 because there's an assumption it will accelerate the shift. But I do worry that we might be setting ourselves up for a peak, at least temporarily. And the reason for that is the Fed is pretty hawkish and Ukraine-Russia tensions could dissipate. And then around the corner is the Iran deal, which the Biden administration is basically just hurtling towards signing that thing. There's basically no way that we will not get an Iran deal. If Iran asked that we rename Los Angeles to New Tehran, I think the Biden administration would do it. Because obviously there's inflation, there's high oil prices, they're sitting on huge amount of floating storage that they can deploy right away. And so I think that there is a scenario where there is a significant downside risk to oil prices despite a fundamentally bullish setup. That's why I've actually liked playing different commodities as hedges. So my two favorite hedges in this conflict were wheat and gold. They did really well. And wheat actually outperformed oil. And also palladium is a good one as well that several hedge fund managers that I spoke with have suggested is a good idea also. And that's because you don't want to just play geopolitical risk premium just because of risk premium. You want to be more intentional. You want to have intentionality when something like this happens. You want to think about supply chains, an actual direct implication. And so I think it's far-fetched that Russia stops exporting oil or that the rest of the world embargoes it. But Palladium, they produce 47% of global supply. It's an incredibly important input in industrial uses. But if they were to stop exporting for six months, they would lose $3 billion. It's not a tragedy to them surrounding error. So it's something that they could impose an embargo on themselves. And then wheat, of course, is a direct play on the naval blockade Russia imposed in Ukraine.
0: I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,025 and one. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. So I want to pivot a little bit before this happened a lot of the questions internationally have been about the Chinese government and crackdowns on certain industries and what that means for long-term investment in China. And would love to get your views on that. My view on China is that
1: the time to forecast China-U.S. tensions was 10 years ago. And I see a lot of Johnny come Latelys to that space for extrapolating linearly the last four years without really a framework for how we got here there in the first place. So I think that China has peaked as a geopolitical power for the next decade. Now, they might overcome the next decade's challenges and then find new highs. (laughs) But I think for the next decade, China is actually more focused domestically and internally. And here's why. They have several traps. I call it the three traps of China. The first trap is an energy trap. Despite their real commitment to green energy shift and EVs, they still depend on seaborne oil for most of their energy. 90% of the imported oil is all seaborne. And they're very vulnerable to that because that oil transits parts of the global maritime supply chain that they don't have any ability to enforce with the naval strength. And they want this decade. Yes, they have now three aircraft carriers, but they don't have the power projection capability to actually control far-flung supply routes. For example, if China decided to reunify with its wayward province, Taiwan, if they were to do that, there would be a risk that there would be an oil embargo, which would significantly curtail their ability to conduct military operations. The other two traps are much more macroeconomic. One of them is just the middle-income trap. China is falling into the middle-income. That was something that they were very concerned. They tried to escape the middle-income trap. I think that they now know that they're in it and they're moving towards this common prosperity agenda to prepare for a life in the middle income trap for the next decade. Now, there's more to it. The idea that they're going to pivot towards middle class growth, domestic demand growth, I don't think it's going to happen. And that's because Chinese middle classes are at the end of their debt super cycle. Because in 2008 and 2009, the West just tapped out, just said, look, we're going to deleverage for the next decade. And what China did last decade is it leveraged itself in order to compensate for the loss of external demand. That was their pivot to domestic demand. But it came at a cost of massive leveraging of households. So if you look at household debt as percent of disposable income in China, it's higher than that of the US. And that's important because it means that for the next decade, this dual circulation dream, you hear a lot of people talking about how China's going to focus more on domestic demand. I'm in a camp that says they're going to fail. They're not going to be able to do it. And they're going to remain as export dependent, if not more. In fact, their pivot away from TMT sector, their pivot away from soft tech, their pivot away from U.S. service oriented economy towards a more German manufacturing model suggests that they're going to continue to make too many things that their domestic economy is not going to be able to consume. So that's their second trap. And it makes them more export dependent. And then the third trap is difficult for a lot of people to wrap their minds around, but it has to do with demographics aging societies, they see a decline in their savings rate. And that's because older households don't save, they consume. You saw that with Japan. Savings rate basically fell. And the way you avoid having to import capital is you drop your investment rate so that your savings rate minus investment rate equals it's balanced. You don't have a current account deficit. That's what Japan did. As its savings rate fell, their investment rate fell, and Japan avoided a current account deficit. But if China's falling into the middle income trap, if its domestic economy, if its domestic middle class can't consume, it has to keep its investment rate high as its saving rate goes down, which means that over the next decade, China will also be in a current account deficit. So China is addicted to foreign sources of energy, it's going to remain addicted to foreign sources of demand, and it's going to become addicted to foreign sources of capital. And I think Chinese policymakers are aware of this, which is why over the last three years, Amidst a pandemic and a trade war and a war of words, they've been opening up their financial sector, preparing themselves for this moment. Now, the only reason the current account surplus in China has increased is two things. Well, really, one thing, it's COVID. We've all been buying on Amazon stuff China makes. Meanwhile, they curtail their tourism. Now, your listeners might be like, wait, what? Who cares? But that's a huge source of imports. Tourism is basically an import for a country. So Chinese are the biggest tourists in the world. It's a huge component of the current account balance. And so when they curtailed it, it benefited the surplus. They went into the surplus. So once COVID dissipates, maybe Chinese policymakers will be able to keep the people at home so they don't export the capital. But I don't think that's going to happen. I think they will start flirting with the current account deficit. And that makes China a lot less ambitious geopolitically because they're going to be dependent on exports, dependent on foreign capital, and dependent on foreign oil.
0: What does that imply about where you see the most interesting investment opportunities in China? Strategic China, that's what we call it, period clock tower. China has gone through
1: phases. The first phase of China was state China, the SOE China. Then it was the new China, the new China plays like the TMT sector, internet companies. US and China are the only two countries that had this web 2.0 revolution. Europe doesn't have social media companies. Japan missed it completely. We think that the next phase is going to be the strategic China. What that implies is really a buildup of manufacturing capacity in technologies that matter for the 21st century, whether it's semiconductors, whether it's CapEx plays like robotics, whether it's green China, EVs, and so on. Now, obviously, Strategic China also implies very much a national security China, and that's going to be a challenge to long-term allocation of capital because, of course, the United States of America is now putting a lot of restrictions on the ability of U.S. investors to invest in this space. And the way I see that is obviously if there's restrictions to American investors, then American investors should not be investing. But the fact of the matter is that I think that America will fail and has failed in building a coalition of the willing. To counter china we see that we see that for example with huawei banning huawei for the 5g network only nine countries have actually banned huawei how many countries will follow with the investment restrictions on quote-unquote strategic china place i guess this is just my way of caveating check your local listings check your local regulatory policies before you invest in china i'm not trying to get anyone to break laws but the point is that i do think strategic china will be the space where investors
0: will have returns, provided that it is legal for them to do that. With Taiwan next door, Taiwan Semi has become the dominant chipmaker in the world. How does China's relationship with Taiwan look in the semiconductor sector? China's trying its best
1: to get to those sophisticated levels below five nanometer chip level, which it can't. And I think it's going to take a long time for them to do that. Much longer than people think. There's no Moore's law in Getting to that level. And so they will have to continue to import a lot of semiconductor chips, including from Taiwan. So the dependency will be there for the next decade. What I think is a more interesting question is how does the West's national security prerogative for redundancy impact Taiwan? When the United States of America starts building fabs in the US, it actually reduces the strategic value of Taiwan. That's kind of the irony of what's happening around the world. I guess if American policymakers wanted to truly protect Taiwan, they should probably keep all the eggs in the same basket. (laughs) Now that every country is going to have a sophisticated fab, the value of Taiwan maybe declines so that at some point in the future, if China decides to reunite with it, maybe it's not going to be as big of an impact on global economy as it would be today. And that's ironic because that's something that America is imposing on Taiwan. It's not something China's imposing on Taiwan, necessarily.
0: Well, it sounds consistent with the deglobalization of the world, as you're talking about, whether it's spheres of influence or local supply and demand with energy. So I'm curious, I know you've been spending a lot of time the last couple of days on this. What are the other most topical issues and questions your clients have been bringing up? Taiwan is the number one question. What's happening in Ukraine
1: leads to Taiwan. As I said, I think China is going to be very cautious, I think for China, this is not the moment to create a huge downside risk to its economy. I also think that if I was sitting in Beijing as a policymaker, I wouldn't be looking at West's response. I wouldn't even be looking at the situation on the ground. I would be looking at the streets of Moscow and St. Petersburg. What's the buy-in from the population for a bloody war of conquest in 2022? The other question, I think, has been just What does this do for the Fed? What does this conflict do in terms of inflation? And as I said, I think that's where the Yom Kippur War really worries me, as does the relatively sanguine market reaction to this act. And then also NATO. There's a view out there that this will help NATO unity. And I really don't think so, Ted. I think that this will actually cleave the Western alliance further. And the reason for that is that basically since about 2008, the U.S., and Europe have taken two different tracks on Ukraine. Now, I know that there's a show of unity every 30 minutes, but that's vacuous. Western Europe and America are diametrically opposed on Ukraine's membership in NATO. And I think the odds of Ukraine ever joining NATO have always been very, very low. But the United States played kind of a spoiler role by encouraging Kiev to take a very adversarial stance towards Russia. So in 2014 and 15, in order to end the war... In Donbass, France and Germany took Kiev by the hand to Minsk and told Ukrainian politicians, you need to get a deal with Russia. And that deal was very onerous to Ukraine because one of the things it did is it gave Donetsk and Luhansk, the two wayward provinces, oblasts of Ukraine, a veto on future international agreements, i.e., EU and NATO membership. But that was the deal that Western Europe got to end that war. And then with encouragement from the US, which was basically telling Kiev, look, we're going to support you in NATO membership and so on. We'll give you some defensive weapons that really could be offensive. Kiev was emboldened. Domestic politics got complicated in Ukraine. It became very difficult to say that Ukraine wouldn't join NATO. Finlandization became a dirty word in Ukraine, this concept of neutral geopolitical stance. And I don't want to say that that led to the situation because obviously Russia is the aggressor. Russian troops are crossing the border. But American involvement in this issue made it more difficult to find an equilibrium that would pacify the situation. Without American support, Kiev probably would have had to sue for peace, as they say, with Russia much earlier. And so what I'm getting at here is this. There is a concept of a Machiavellian America. And this is an America that is now aware that it's in a multipolar world. It's an America that's aware that after six years of two ideologically diametrically opposed administrations, this country only managed to get nine countries on board with the Huawei ban. And that's an America that realizes that actually, if the rest of the world is not going to follow U.S. rules and norms of behavior, then U.S. will do what's in its best interests. And in the case of Ukraine and Russia, maybe the best interest is to put a little thorn in Russia's side. And so the lesson that Paris and Berlin are learning right now is that maybe they should have never gotten U.S. involved in the first place. Now, I understand that this is completely different from what everyone's saying. Their unity in NATO, like, is there no? Mario Draghi is getting carve-outs in the sanctions for Italian luxury sales to Russia. So a lot of clients are asking me, so what does this mean? And I say, look, I think what it means is Europe is going to remilitarize. If you have the mandate on the ESG side, buy some European defense stocks, but don't expect it to do so within the U.S. umbrella. And I think that European integration is actually going to be one of the consequences of this crisis, where Europe realizes, look, at the end of the day, we're on our own. Whether it's Biden or Trump, America seeks American interests. And I don't mean that in any negative way. All is fair in love and war. U.S. doesn't have permanent enemies or friends it has interests, and so does Europe, and so does Russia, and so does everyone else. And I think capitals
0: are realizing that today. So I wanna wrap by just asking the broad brush question if we go back to your original framework from your book and thinking about constraints, you talked about that in Russia. Maybe touch on what you see as the major constraints in what would otherwise be a logical action, perhaps for the US and for China.
1: I think the constraints to conflict in US-China is first and foremost, as I described, China's three traps. Those three traps are hurting Chinese Communist Party's ability to deliver the China dream to its population. I think that's the prerogative number one. Now, I've talked to many very smart people who know China better than me, who say, no, Marco, you're wrong. Their prerogative number one is to reunify with Taiwan. And I challenge that. I challenge that by saying we know for a fact the Chinese Communist Party can be a legitimate Domestic political force without reunifying with Taiwan. We know that because they haven't and they're legitimate. They continue to rule China. Whereas we don't know what would happen to the Chinese Communist Party if the quality of life and the standards of living started to decline in China. If I was advising President Xi, I would tell him way too much downside risk to mess with this Taiwan issue. Let's focus on growing the economy. So that's the first issue I would say. That's a constraint. China, those three traps are serious constraint to China. For U.S., the constraint is that they can't build a coalition of the willing against China. If every country in the world is going to cheat, if France is going to sell Airbuses, if America pulls back on Boeings, if that's what's going to happen, then there is a constraint to the U.S. and how it counters China without hurting its own economy. And that was something that actually the Trump administration was very clear on until the pandemic started and then became a campaign issue to be anti-China. But Trump was very clear. I'm not going to hurt American companies' ability to make money in China, not because he's not patriotic or not because he's not thinking about America, but because Trump administration understood that if you sell goods to China and then get money for it, that money goes to taxes that then build cruise missiles (laughs) and
0: America's might. So those are the constraints in U.S. and China. To wrap up, in the conversations you've had, if you're talking to a client who wants to take risk in this environment, and another who wants to reduce risk, what are the single actions you recommend for each? Buy commodities for both of them. I don't know what to tell you. Look at the
1: chart of SPX relative to commodity prices. We are at a cusp of a commodity super cycle, and a recession could obviously curtail that. It would way it, but not for a significant period of time. That's why I would answer that by saying
0: for both. Marco, on short notice, I really, really appreciate you taking the time sharing your perspective. Anytime. It's such a pleasure and an honor. Thank you, Ted. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one and see you next time.